0: Our father, the uh, psalmist, said that the sum of thy word is truth. And uh, we all had to uh, learn the three R's, the old reading, writing, and arithmetic, as they used to say. And uh, I remember my grandpa used to ask me if I knew my sums. And... uh, when we add it all up, that's the sum. And the psalmist said, the sum of thy word is truth. We are grateful that we have a, a word from you that is certain, that is true, that we can stake our lives on. Uh, we, we meet here in this building um, all the time there are groups meeting in here and in other churches all over the world and we study a book we study your book Um, we we study uh, any of those 66 books from genesis 1 to revelation 22 because the sum of thy word is truth and christ is to be found in every one of those 66 books. Some of those books were written before he came to die, and those books point ahead to him. Some were written about his time on the earth. Some were written by the apostles, and they gave further instruction and clarification. But now the book is closed. Um, we don't add to it, we don't take away from it. But we are men of the book because Christ is the living word and some Bible publishers have seen fit to take the words of Christ in the Gospels and put them in red. But if they were to be consistent, the entire Bible then would be red, because it's all the word of Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. When we're adequate and equipped for every good work, we are completely furnished. And your word completely furnishes us for everything we need pertaining to life and godliness we got a lot of guys here, and if each guy could uh, take a few minutes and talk about what's going on in his life, there are a lot of issues, there are a lot of pressures, there are a lot of burdens, there are a lot of concerns, but your word completely furnishes us with what we need for what we are facing. It is not an idle word for us, it is our lives, as Deuteronomy 32 says, so I would pray for us tonight. You would give us, um, uh, most of us have had long days. Started early, going pretty hard today. Um, I I would pray that you would help us to focus. You you would help us, Lord, to hear, uh, to, 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 to not get fatigued so that we miss what you have to say to us. Do that for us. We would ask tonight. We are totally dependent on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we've been in this now since September, in this chapter which is known as God's Hall of Faith or God's Hall of Fame. To summarize, we get a lot of men, a few women from the Old Testament, who walk by faith, name of the game in the Christian life is walking by faith, Uh, 11.6, pretty important uh, verse in Hebrews chapter 11, because it describes what the men who are mentioned did when they were on the earth, and it also is an encouragement to those of us who are alive and walking our course on the face of the earth, um, what it is that we are doing. We are walking by faith. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So we are walking by faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Christianity. Uh, if you, you say, yeah, but Jesus Christ isn't all there is to Christianity, Because you have God the Father. Well, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. Oh, and then when Jesus was preparing his disciples for him to go away, he said, it is to your advantage that I go away, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Well, what is it the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. Jesus said, when he comes, he shall glorify me. You know, it's interesting because you see different movements going on and there are different aspects to the body of Christ. And sometimes in certain Christian groups, you see a tremendous emphasis on the Holy Spirit. I I have seen um, oh, in Christian magazines uh, 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 advertisements for a a conference on the Holy Spirit. Uh, That always interests me because they're coming to study the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus said, can I tell you what the job of the Holy Spirit is when you look at the scriptures? Jesus said, when he comes, he shall glorify me. When you've got the Spirit of God at work, they're not necessarily, it's not that the Holy Spirit is getting people to talk about him, it's that he's getting people to talk about Jesus. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, had a tremendous illustration of the work of the Holy Spirit. So you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He said, the the Holy Spirit, it's like going down the interstate and you see a billboard lit up at night. And when you're going by that billboard, you don't think to yourself, gosh, that's a powerful light that is illuminating that billboard so I can read it. You never think about the light that is shedding glory on the sign so that you can read it. The job of that light is to get your attention on the billboard, on the advertisement. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He points us to Christ. He's always pointing us to Jesus, you see. And the Holy Spirit has a significant ministry, but it all revolves around the work of Christ. So when we are walking by faith, we are walking, trusting in God, believing that He is, as He's revealed in the Scripture. Uh, We're believing that He has made certain promises to us, we, we believe that he has given us his word. We believe it's a sure word. We believe that God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. We serve a God who cannot lie. It doesn't say that he doesn't lie. It says he cannot lie. So the Christian life is coming to faith in Christ, trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins, trusting him alone, Jesus plus nothing. Jesus paid it all. He is our Savior. We trust in Him. He gives us eternal. And now we're going to follow Him. He said, my sheep hear my voice in John 10. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. So you're following somebody. A Christian man is following Christ. And there are different levels of maturity in the Christian life as there are different levels of maturity in physical life. If you're new in Christ uh, just in the last year or two, sorry to tell you this, but you're sort of a toddler. And that's okay, because toddlers are toddlers, and you don't turn into some um, massive, strong Christian uh, by jumping in a microwave and hitting spiritual maturity for three minutes. It is a process. It is a process of slow growth, and we go from faith to faith. Faith. And and God sees our hearts, and he sees our, just like with a little kid. You see their heart, you see their intent. They can't quite pull off what they want to do, and you see that, and you make room for it, and you love them and encourage them. He does that for us. We're not quite where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be either. We're in process. So we're walking by faith. Now... (laughs) Here is one of the gigantic struggles of the Christian life, I think. And we're going to see it tonight. The guy we're looking at tonight is Samson. Now, everybody knows about Samson. Um, he's mentioned in Hebrews 11:32, 32. And he's also mentioned in the book of Judges. He's got quite a bit of print on his life in Judges. So we know about Samson. But tonight, we're not really gonna start with Samson. We're gonna start with Samson's father, a man named Manoah. Because we have information on Samson's life, more so than any other judge that we've looked at in the book of Judges, because you've got four guys in Hebrews 11 mentioned that were in the book of Judges, and we've been looking at them over the last few weeks. Uh, You've got Gideon, you've got Barak, you've got Jephthah, and tonight we've got Samson but we've got more of an extended bio on Samson than the other guys. In fact, a whole chapter is devoted to the conception and birth of Samson, an entire chapter. Um, We're going to look at that tonight. And what we're going to see in looking at that chapter on his conception and his birth, because his parents, his mother was barren and she couldn't have children. Some of you have, um, uh, your, your wives have struggled with infertility. And boy, that's, that's a crushing thing for a wife to deal with. Uh, how many times in the Old Testament do we see women who could not have children? And, and um, was it, uh, who was it that said to her husband, give me children or I die? It was either Rachel or Rebecca. I can't remember which one. And what do you say to that? Give me children or I die. Well, I'm doing the best I can do, but that's in God's hands, is it not? But it is tremendously hard on a, on a woman, and we live in a day where a lot of women, uh, you know, we, we've got a kind of a different culture going on, and a lot of young girls are told coming up that mothering is really not all that important, and it's more important to have a career, and all of this and all of this, and a lot of women you know, say okay, and they pursue that. And then what happens at a certain point, they kind of have a moment of panic because they realize, hey, this biological clock is ticking and it is running out. So we've got uh, fertility drugs, and we've got in vitro, and we've got all kinds of things in an attempt to have a child because it's a wonderful thing to have a child. Uh, Samson's parents were not able to conceive um, and, and in this episode of the story of his conception and, and his birth, we get a glimpse into an issue that affects men who are attempting to follow Christ and, th- and, 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 and want to follow Christ, but this is an issue that comes up all of the time in the Christian life. It doesn't matter if you're a year old in the faith, it doesn't matter if you've been walking with Christ for 60 years, it's an issue that keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. And here's the issue. Those who walk by faith, as Hebrews 11 outlines, do so by thinking and not by feeling. Let's say that again. You say, well, Is that really this big of a deal? It's a huge deal, and I think I can show it to you. Those who walk by faith do so primarily by thinking and not by feeling. Our faith is not based on feelings, feelings are not central to the Christian life, feelings are part of it. We, we live in a society that is very feeling-oriented. It always cracks me up at the end of a football game. I'm going to get some heat on this. <laughs> but it cracks me up because they got to have female reporters on the sidelines. For some reason, there's a law now. It's got to be a female reporter. And female reporters ask different kinds of questions than male reporters ask. So a guy has just scored six touchdowns and, you know, whatever. And they stick the microphone... Or you just won the Super Bowl. And here's, here's what they do. Watch this. They put the microphone and this woman will say, how did you feel? When you realized you'd won the Super Bowl. Well, how do you think I felt? Why don't you tell me? But see, they can't say that. You can't say that. Now, that's not the question that a male reporter would ask. He would say, you know, you scored six touchdowns. But back in the third quarter, you were running that screen, and he was going to throw you that pass. And it looked to me like you heard footsteps and dropped that. Am I right? Did you drop that pass? Because you could have had seven, but it looked to me like you failed in that situation. (laughs) You could have had seven. You got six. I'm all for you. You could have had seven, but you know, you screwed up there, don't you think? (laughs) The Christian life is primary a lot. I want to say this and I want to hone in on it. The Christian life is a life primarily of thinking. You have to think. Christianity is about facts. Christianity is about propositional truth. There are certain doctrines that are put forth in Scripture. Jesus is either God or he isn't. The Bible is the word of God or it isn't. Uh, Jesus lived a sinless life, or he didn't. Well, how do you feel about that? (laughs) You don't have that in there. Doesn't matter how you feel. The question is, is it true? He was born of a virgin. What? Virgins don't have babies. Well, God can do that. God can do whatever he wants to do. Um... If he's God, you would expect him to have an unusual birth, would you not? Without a human father. Because if he had had a human father, he would have had a sin nature, but that can't be. It's either true or it isn't. It's based on certain propositional facts. He died in our place for our sins. That's either true or it isn't. He was buried and rose literally bodily from the dead and appeared to over 500 at one time. That's either true or it isn't. If it's not true, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he says we're fools because we're, 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 we're living our lives based on a myth. It's like Greek mythology, you know, these, these Greek gods up there that have to be placated and... Uh, y- y- Anyway, some dysfunctional family and you sacrifice to them in order to get them to like you and you bribe them and all this stuff. No, no. This is a mythology. He either rose from the dead or he, or he didn't. He's at the right hand of the Father or he isn't. What's he doing at the right hand of the Father? He lives forever to make intercession for us. He's either praying for me now or he isn't. It's about facts. And what happens in the Christian life is that at times... We have something happen to us that is unforeseen and unexpected, and something will happen to us in our life that shocks us and stuns us and um, throws us. And when that happens, and it's not good news. I'm not talking about positive news. I'm talking about bad news. When you go in to see the doctor and you get the test results and you get a call and they say, come in immediately. Well, that's not what you want to, you don't want to hear that. But immediately when you hear that, come in immediately, your mind starts racing, does it not? Oh my gosh, what is wrong? Well, and your wife says, well, what did they say? Well, they just said this and this. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. And then you, both of you, your mind takes off being infinitely creative in all the terrible things that possibly could happen, and you don't know any facts. Is that not human nature? Yeah. See, that's called panic. Uh, or, Or you get a letter. Or you get a pink slip. Or you get, it could be all kinds of different things, but it's bad news you didn't count on, you kind of have your life plan, and you're moving along nicely and then something happens and pulls the rug out from you and it threatens you, it threatens your stability, your well-being, your finances, your health, whatever it might be and what happens is, what happens is we tend, watch this, we tend to stop thinking and we tend, if it's really bad news, we tend to immediately panic. Have you ever panicked? Sure, you have. Sure, you have. And what's, you know, here's the interesting thing about panic panic it affects everything about us. What is panic? Panic is feelings gone wild. That's what panic is. Panic is uh, the mob rule of feelings. Uh, Panic is a jailbreak of feelings. And what happens is it overruns your life, it overruns your thinking, it throws you into disarray, it even affects you physiologically. There are different reactions to panic. Uh, Some some guys start sweating. Um... uh, Earlier this year, I I went in and and got a scan, the whole body scan, you know. And, uh, well, I was going through security trying to get on a plane. (laughs) Not that scan. But I went went and got one of the full deals. And then afterwards, I met with the doctor, and he told me, you know, he said, well, everything looks good except this, and you got an extremely high score here. And I immediately began to uh, sweat. Uh, that's pretty high score. That didn't look good to me. That didn't look good at all. And uh, and John Duncan, he said to me, "So look it, I want you to go see this cardiologist." I said, "Okay." And and then he looked at me and he goes, "I want you to lose forty pounds." And then you know I went to see the cardiologist. And I walk in and get my blood pressure taken. Now one thing that always, for some reason. My blood pressure always is right where it ought to be. In fact, I'm sitting down with the nurse, and Mary went with me because I was crying, and I wanted her to hold my hand. <laughs> and, um, and this gal goes to take my blood pressure, and she said, well, how's your blood pressure normally? I said, it's perfect. I mean, I, I don't know why, but it's always perfect. And she took my blood pressure, and she looks at me and goes, well, it wasn't perfect. She said, well, it's, you know, 293 over four, or whatever. I don't know what she said. I said, really? And she said, are you all right? I go, I'm fine. And Mary said, actually, he's very nervous. I said, I am? She goes, you're extremely nervous. I've never seen you this nervous. I was nervous, because I was afraid of what this guy was going to tell me. Um, and then fortunately, they ran some more, and and I'm all right, and I needed to lose the weight. And he said the same thing. He said, lose 40 pounds. Uh, here was the fact. I needed to get some things under control. Because if I didn't, there were some very serious implications. You see? So in order to get things under they gave me, you need to do this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And in essence, when I walked out of there, they said, in essence... We want you to think about this every day, every day. We want you to think about this every day, every day. See, even life, just regular old life, is pretty much based on thinking. you got to think, because every action has a reaction. Every choice has a consequence. Is it not? And so we teach our kids, you got to think about your decisions because there are implications and consequences to decisions. And when we're young, we don't think about that. But there are. Okay. So the way to live, uh, not even a Christian life, but the way to live life is to think about what you're doing. Christianity is based on thinking. When we get bad news and the rug is pulled out from under us, what happens to us is that the feelings go wild. And our feelings run off. Oh my gosh, I got bad news about uh, you know, my business. Uh, oh my gosh, if we have another quarter like this, we're done. I don't even know if we can survive. I don't even know if we're going to make payroll this month. And all this, the feel Psalm 94. Um, I wrote it down. Why don't I look at it? When my anxious thoughts, watch this, multiply within me. You ever have anxious thoughts, multiply? You never get just one anxious thought, do you? They breed like rabbits. We got skunks under our house. Oh yeah, we're loving life right now. And we don't have one skunk. We got a family of skunks. We got baby skunks. And they're letting us know they're there. (laughs) Haven't seen them. We just strongly believe they're down there. (laughs) And so we had two skunk trappers out to the house this afternoon. They don't usually do that, they're exterminators. But now and then, you just got to trap those suckers you see. And that's what that's what happens sometimes in life. We, we have stuff happen to us, and that, that's no big deal. They'll get rid of them and all that. But we have very serious stuff that happens. And what happens is you get an anxious thought, and it multiplies just like, you know, skunks, like rabbits. They just multiply and you take off. And what happens is, here's, here's what happens in the Christian life. When you get bad news, and Once again, everybody looks calm and collected and everybody looks together. But there are guys in here that have gotten news in the last week that caused you to panic. There are a lot more guys that in the last month have gotten news of some form or variety that caused you to panic. You back up six months. There's a whole lot of guys that have gotten some news. And your initial reaction was panic. And what happened was, then your feelings run wild. So how do you unpanic, if that's a word? Here's the deal about feelings in the Christian life. Feelings must be harnessed, feelings must be grounded, feelings must be controlled, they must be tamed, and sometimes feelings have to be tasered, or they will take you over and drive you into despair and into depression. So the Christian life is about thinking. Now, why, with all that set up, I want to show you not Samson, who's in Hebrews eleven 32, but his bio is in Judges, so let's go to Judges 13. And it's always great news when you're going to have a baby. Always great news. Especially when you haven't been able to have a child and you've wanted a child. So in Judges 13, and by the way, we're getting to the end of Judges here. And this book covers 300 years, basically, between the book of Joshua, which was a wonderful period in the life of the nation of Israel, when they were conquering and God was blessing, and they were seeking God only and rejecting the idols. But in the book of Judges, if you've been with us, you know, they have turned from the living God, they've gone after the idols, and so God has had to send his judgment upon them, and they have gone down and down and down to a moral spiral and about every 70 or 80 years they'll call out to God, they're so desperate because he'll send oppressors upon them. They're collapsing from within and oppressors are coming from without. They call out to God, finally they call out to God. He sends a deliverer, a judge, to help them militarily and then they have some peace and then as as things get better they wander away from God again to the idols and this is going on for 300 years. We're getting close to the end of Judges. When Samson shows up, um, when he's born, the first king of Israel, Saul, will be anointed about 50 years down the road, just to give you some historical context. Okay? So the Philistines in Judges 13 are oppressing the people of God. All right? That's verse 1. Then there's a man of the family of the Danites... 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was Dan. This man's name is Manoah. He's going to be Samson's father. Uh, the angel of the Lord, in verse 3, appears to his wife, says, Behold now, you were barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, here's, this gets interesting. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, How did he know that? Well, God knows everything. Right? I mean, God knows everything. He didn't say, you know, I think it's about 70, 30, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. Okay. And no razor shall come upon his head, and the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Okay. Okay. Now, you have these, in the Old Testament, both men and women could become Nazarites. It was a voluntary vow that they would take. Um, a Nazarite would separate themselves, and they would, they, they would separate themselves unto the Lord. And so there would be a few things they would do. Number one, they would drink no wine. And everybody drank wine back then, because the water, you didn't know what was going on with the water, and the wine had a little bit of alcohol in it, and it was a health issue, Okay? So they, they, but they wouldn't drink wine. Uh, They wouldn't cut their hair. No razor would hit their hair. The first one is in thirteen four. We just read it. Then thirteen five. No razor cuts the hair. And number six six. You can't touch a dead body. Okay. Now what's interesting is, is that he says to this woman, "You're going to have a boy. He's going to be a Nazarite." But he says to her, uh, "In verse three, you're barren. You have no children." Then he says to her in four, now you be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Why? Uh, The Nazarite vow was a vow that people took voluntarily. But Samson was going to be a Nazarite, not because he volunteered, because he was ordained and chosen by God to be a Nazarite. So even when he's in the womb, the mother is told, because That is not a fetus, that is a baby within her. You don't drink strong drink because you're carrying an Azurite. The Bible is pro life. Know it. So then, all right, this is amazing news. She's going to have a baby. So what does she do? She goes and tells her husband. Verse six, she tells her husband the whole story. A man of God appeared to me with the appearance of an angel of God, it was very awesome. Uh, verse 7, he told me I'm going to conceive. She recounts the whole thing. Verse 8, Manoah, the husband, entreats the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who was to be born. Verse 9, so the Lord listens to Manoah, sends the angel of God back to the woman. She's in the field, but Manoah is not with her. Okay? So the woman runs to her husband in 10, the man who had came to me the other day has appeared. 11. Manoah arose, followed his wife. When he came to the man, are you the man who spoke to the woman? I'm in 11. He said, I am. Now, what shall, uh, uh, verse 12, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? Well, it's interesting. That had already been said. But he's looking for clarification. How often do we do that? You see, he's just a guy. Just a guy like you, you are and I am, okay? He wants more details. He wants more information. 13, the angel said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said, and he recounts what he had told her originally. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel, Lord, please let us detain you that we may prepare a young goat for you. Uh, it was a big deal having goats. Some of you guys had goat for lunch at a Chinese restaurant. You don't even know it. <laughs> Who knows what you had? You don't want to know. So he wants to, you know, have hospitality, cook a goat. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Now this is where it gets very interesting. Verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? If you have a New American Standard Bible, and you look in your margin, you'll see the marginal note next to the word wonderful, and you'll see an alternative translation in the margin. It says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is, watch this, incomprehensible. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's known as a theophany. From time to time in the Old Testament, Jesus would show up, Jesus just showed up. Oh, how do you know that? Because he's, he won't give the name, he'll just say it's wonderful. In John eight, the Pharisees are riding Jesus and they're saying, well, we're, hey, we're not born illegitimate, you are. They're writing. They knew about this virgin birth thing. And he made a statement to them. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They said, Abraham. And Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. He's saying he's, God, he's Yahweh. In the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our God, our God. And see, this is is, is really important. This is hugely important. And I'll tell you why it's important. Because when we get bad news, from the doctor, or the pink slip, or this, or a lawsuit, or this, or this, or this. We get panicky, we get unstable, our feelings just go crazy, all this, okay, okay. And it's just a normal, natural reaction. But at some point, you gotta get your feet under you. And you gotta do it every day. And sometimes, depending on the intensity, you gotta do it every hour. But you gotta get your feet under you, and you gotta stand firm on what is true. And see, this is why in Matthew 6, when they were so worried and anxious about how they were going to survive, Jesus said to them in 6.25, for this reason I say to you, don't worry about your life. And he just spent all the previous verses in Matthew 6 talking about the Father. We have a Father who has always been, and Jesus has always been, They are not created. By the way, the Quran has a verse that says, God is not a father and he has no son. That's in the Quran. That's blasphemy. In Matthew 6, the Son of God is pointing us to the Father. And he says, for this reason, I say, don't worry about your life. And, and then in other places, I and the Father are one. See, our God, when you, when you get bad news or a lawsuit and it threatens them to you, you stand on who your Father is, who has always existed and always will be, and owns and controls everything in the world. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Well, who is Jesus. He is the eternal, existent God who was not created. He has always been. That's a fact. And what that fact does is that fact anchors me when I'm scared about losing everything. Well, it's going to go to court. Well, let me tell you something. He runs juries and he runs judges. Did you know that? He runs every human heart. There are cases in (laughs) Scripture. Your your well-being, your future, is not dependent on some human decision. The human, even those that don't know him, do what he tells them to do. And if you don't believe that, I feel sorry for you. And if you don't believe that, I would encourage you to start reading this Bible through and marking how God controls the decisions of human beings. You won't give glory to me? I'm going to give you the mind of an animal for seven years. You're going to summer school for seven years and you don't have a thing to say about it because I control you and your mind and your ability to think and then I'm gonna bring you out and you are going to give glory to me to Cyrus he said you're gonna restore my people to Jerusalem you're gonna rebuild the city you're gonna do this all for them at your own expense even though you don't know me and he said it 150 years before Cyrus existed and that's what happened you got to be anchored, guys. you got to be anchored in this truth. And what this does is, that calms the feelings that get out of control. Because we don't walk by feelings, we walk by what is true. We walk by faith in the God who is there, who has all power and all wisdom. Yeah, but bad things happen. They do. The Lord gives. And Satan takes away, Job said. Is that what Job said? Job said the Lord, because Job had lost, did he not? And see, here's what happens to us. We get in situations, and we're afraid, I might lose something. This is hard, This is hard. but I want to say it to you. The best thing that might happen, the best thing, let me, let me put it this way. You might need, you might need to lose something. Because maybe you love it too much. Now, I don't want to hear that myself. But we've all experienced the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Well, I've lost it. I don't have this in my life. That doesn't mean it's not a good thing. It's just not a good thing for you right now. Because sometimes God needs to get our attention. But but here's what I'm saying. You don't have to then go out of here and say, oh my gosh, I wonder if I'm going to lose it because I need to lose it and get all introspective and just get all freaked out. Just just chill out, man. Go through the drive-through and in and out on the way home. And just eat a cheeseburger and relax. Unless you go to the cardiologist I go to. And you say, Lord, and, and what you say is, Lord, is there something I'm... Do I, just ask him, Lord, is there something I'm missing here? Am I out of sorts? Am I loving something too much more than you? And if that's what's going on, he'll let you know. And then what do you do? Deal with it. Just deal with it. He's not going to confuse you. He's not going to keep you in the dark. But but let me say this. Sometimes you take away from your own kids because they're not ready to handle it. Um, Peter said, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Be willing to do what God wants you to do. Sometimes you put it all on the altar. Gosh, I might lose everything financially. My dad did. When I was a senior in high school, he lost it all. Job lost it all. But I will tell you this, as the years went by, God did great things out of that period of time in our family. And I think my dad, I know my dad, I heard my dad basically say what David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Yeah. So what you do is you yield to the father and say, and here's what you do in these situations. Oh man, this might happen, this might happen. Listen, it's in his hands. And you say, you know, Lord, not my will but thine be done. What do you want to do here? I am all in with you. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my life. And see, what that does is, see, that's rational and that's sane because who knows better what to do with your life than him? Right? Does this not make sense? Would you not go to the God of the universe who knows all things and has all power and has all wisdom? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, what God has prepared for those who love him. He's got stuff in mind for us we can't even fathom, and we're afraid. He, now, Lord, you need to do this and this and this. Shut up. Just chill out, man. Your Father, it's in his hands. What he want, you know what he wants from us? He wants us to trust him. Okay. All right. All right. So now, he says, tell us your name. And, and the angel of the Lord said, why do you ask my name, seeing it is incomprehensible? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> they didn't still quite get it. Look at verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat, and the grain offering, and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. He performed wonders. He's doing miraculous things, and they're watching. And then it came about, when the flame went up from the altar towards heaven, That the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. This is what happens when people realize they're in the presence of God. They fall on their face in fear. Because he's holy and we're not. That is the right reaction. You fall on your face before a holy God and you cover yourself up. It was done by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 128. It was done by Isaiah in Isaiah 65. It was done by the apostles in Mark chapter 4 verse 3. It was done by Peter in Luke 5 verse 8. It was done by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in Revelation 1, verse 17. When you are in the presence of Almighty God, you fall on your face as if a dead man. And so that's what they did. They fall on their face. Uh, verse 21. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Put yourself in the shoes. You've just seen this amazing thing. That's God. And they fell on their face. Now here's my question. How long were they on their face? Well, how long would you be on your face if you thought you were in the presence of a Holy God? You're not moving, you are not moving. What do you think, 30 seconds? I think maybe 30 minutes. You're afraid to move, you're afraid to breathe. You're in absolute awe and you're in fear of the magnificence of this God. How much time went by? I don't know, but they're on their faces Then Manoah, Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. He knew. He knew. Okay, now watch this. 22. Now I want you to watch something. Watch this. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. Okay. This is what you call panic. Now, let's, I want to reconstruct this. Are you guys still with me? Okay. Now, I want you to imagine if this were to have happened to you. None of us in here have seen God. We haven't. Okay. But if this had happened to you, put yourself in his situation the fear, the awe, the just, I mean, you're afraid to move, you're afraid to twitch your finger, and, and after a certain amount of time, you kind of, you know, you open one eye and you're looking around, and, and he's not here, he's gone. And then Manoah says to his wife, What does he say here in verse 20? He says, in verse 20, he says to his wife, he goes in a very calm and collected voice, he said, "Uh, my dear, I believe we shall surely die. For we have seen God. Now, is that how he said it? I don't think that's how he said it. You don't get the inflection on the page. Here's what I think he said. When he finally looked around and he realized the coast was clear and all that, I think he said to his wife, what the heck just happened? We're going to die. We've just seen God. Do you understand? I mean, I think the sucker, I think his emotions were going wild. And I think he was panicked. But watch his wife, who seems to have a little bit more stability, Watch her. watch her think and respond to him. Verse 23, but his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, watch the logic and watch the thinking. Watch what that responds to the panic. If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. That's rational. It's logical. It makes sense and it calms the heart and it calms the spirit because it all adds up, does it not? But see, here's what happens. See, this is why the two are stronger than one. This is why you don't live the Christian life by yourself. Because see, we get attacked. And sometimes we get off on a trail of wrong thinking. And we go down a rabbit trail. Oh my god, my anxious thought, oh my gosh, this is gonna happen, oh this is gonna happen, and then I'm gonna, oh, and and we're just we're just going nuts with fear and worry and anxiety, and we paint these pictures and we're just we're just freaked out of our minds. It happens. Um, Would you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter eight? one of the best definitions of faith i have ever heard in my entire life i read i read 31 years ago in a book called spiritual depression by martin lloyd jones where am i going luke 8. And in commenting on the passage in Luke 8, which I don't see in my Bible, because I have my new Bible. And it should be over on the right middle. Oh, it's there on the left upper. There it is. All right, look at verse 22. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got him in a boat, and he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. Okay? As they're sailing along, they're going across the Sea of Galilee. They do this all the time. Okay? It's like going across Lake Louisville. It's just what they do. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Why? He'd been exhausted from ministry all day. Jesus falls asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. Now, the Sea of Galilee can be very calm one minute and tumultuous the next, because you've got these winds that come from the east from Iraq, and they sweep over hundreds of miles, and they drop down the Golan Heights on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, about 800 feet, and they drop to this very, very large body of water. And then about 20 miles away on the west, you got the Mediterranean Sea, and you got, and you got winds coming in. I mean, Pete Dulcus could explain this to you. I, I can't, or, or any of the guys on the Weather uh, the Weather Channel guys could explain this. But you got a low hitting a high or a tsunami. I don't know what the chump it is, but then you got something coming in. And what happens is it all hits and collides over that Sea of Galilee. So it can be calm one minute, and the next minute you've got a storm. So storms are pretty frequent on the Sea of Galilee. These guys had been in storms. Peter was a fisherman. He's on this, on this body of water every day of his life until he met Jesus. He's been through some storms, but here's what happens. Jesus falls asleep, a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now they'd been in some storms, but so they'd never been in a storm like this. They'd never seen waves this high, They'd never seen seen wind this intense. And you know what? That boat was starting to get swamped, and they were going to go down. Probably the worst storm they had ever seen, the worst storm they had ever experienced. And maybe that's what you're in right now. You've never been in anything quite like this in your life. And isn't it interesting because it sort of seems to you like the Lord's asleep and you're not getting much of a response, and you're not getting many answers right now. See, this happens in the Christian life. So what's their reaction to this? Well, they panic. Look what happens. They came to Jesus, woke him up, and they said in a very calm and rational and serene voice, Master, Master. Oh, ruler of the waves, who has created the world and all that is in it. That's not what they said. Jesus! Jesus! Master, we are perishing. Get up and do something. Help us. My gosh, what are you doing sleeping? Look at this. We're going down, we're going under. Now, that's, that's what happened. That was the emotion. If not more, because when you're in panic, you got that wild eyed look. You've gone berserker. You're like a linebacker in the NFL. I mean, you're just crazy with fear. That's where these guys were. And what do they do? They wake him up because they're scared to death. They're, the fear his there was a jailbreak of emotions. They're going to be swamped and they're going to die. And he got up. And rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Now, you stop and think about that for a minute. So, you got a storm like they've never seen in their lives. They wake him up. In fact, one of the passages in the Gospels, <laughs> they say, "Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? Aren't you concerned that we are perishing?" Well, of course he was. If they had been rational, of course he's rational. He cares. He loves them. They knew that, but not in panic. They forgot the facts. So what does Jesus do? He gets up and he speaks to the storm and it is instantaneously calm and serene. Instantaneously. Now, Who are they afraid of? They're afraid of him. Are they not? Because he has just demonstrated his mastery over everything, everything. And then note what Jesus says to them. He looks at them and Jesus says, where? Is your faith? Shoot, it was here somewhere. You ever do that, looking for your keys? Where, where, where the heck did I put my keys? Jesus says, hey, 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 where's your faith? Well, when Jesus is doing miracles back on the shore, man, their faith was, they were cruising. Isn't this great? Son of God? Healing every disease, casting out demons. I mean, this is unreal. But see, guys, listen, the Christian life, faith, here's the name of the game. Faith is to be applied. Applied. Faith is just not an intellectual exercise. It is to be applied to our situations. You ever get a burn? You ever get a cut? You got a medicine cabinet? It's a pretty good cut. And you walk in there, and you got some Neosporin, and you say, man, that's good. I'm so glad, gosh, I'm so glad we got that Neosporin. And you shut the cabinet, and you walk away. And a few hours later, you come back by, and you look in there, and you go, man, that Neosporin, that stuff's unbelievable. Gosh, you know, a lot of people live in third world countries. They don't even have access. Man, I'm so glad my wife got that Neosporin. And then later that day, you've heard it, neosporin three times a day is really good. But see, if you just acknowledge the neosporin is on the shelf, that's not going to do you any good. Because neosporin is only good for a cut if it is applied to the cut. And our faith is only good when it is applied to the situation. Um, So once again, I don't know where you are. And there are different situations that come along. Um, There are different situations that come along. And God in his mercy, let me say this to you. He grows our faith. He builds our faith. A storm that would collapse your faith he will not bring into your life when you're young. He's merciful to toddlers and young believers and all that. But as we get older and our faith muscle builds, the test will get more intense. But you've got the spiritual muscle because you have a track record and you've been in the gymnasium to now handle a greater test that would have crushed you 10 years ago. Um 6 years ago the IRS was targeting ministries in Texas for some reason. This is what my CPA told me. And we get a letter they want to audit our ministry. Fine. Great. And we're not a big deal, you know. So the auditor comes and I had a different CPA and they said you want to come and I said sure, I'll come and then, Later, I found out maybe you send someone in your... I I mean, I didn't. I said, sure, I'll come. The guy was real nice. Uh, I think he was a believer, actually. Seemed to be. Very gracious guy. Asked questions, you know, and he said, I've got these concerns, and answered the questions. Here's the documents, all that, okay. And Then about two weeks later, I get an email from the CPA. And there were 10 questions, and everything from 1 through 9 is good, 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 good. And then number 10 was bad. Uh, he doesn't think you're a viable, this is a viable ministry that is qualified to do this and this. In other words, what you've been doing for 22 years is wrong. And you're going to have to go back, and everything has been done, you're going to have to pay taxes and penalties and all this. And this happened Thursday afternoon. Uh, it happened Thursday evening, about 10 o'clock. Never check email, plus 7 is my rule. And I violated it. So how was my sleep that night? Not real good. Because the implications of that were staggering. And I knew we were within the law. I knew we were on this issue. And um, anyway, anyway, so the next day, I'm talking with the guys on the board, and we're calling around. Do we need a taxi? What do we need on this thing? I mean, I've never been in this before. And about um, 4.30, I'm praying. I'm talking to different guys. We're making calls. Who do we? Who, who should? And I thought, Ken Sibley. Ken, Ken Sibley, I, I see Ken about every, up until the time, about every five years. Been down at First Baptist Dallas for years and years and years, and just real solid guy, CPA. Uh, anyway, he had called me a few weeks before about a speaking invitation. It's a long story. And I thought, Ken, I'm going to call Ken, because he knows all about ministries and this. And I call his office. Oh, he's out of town. He's at a conference. He won't be back till Monday. It's 4.30. I went, shoot, so I've got to think about this all weekend. Gosh. Five minutes later, cell phone. Hey, Steve, Ken Sibley. Ken, thought you were out of town. I'm in L.A. getting ready to walk into a meeting. What's going on? And I told him. And he said, can you forward me that email right now? I go, yeah. And he said, all right, Steve, i got to run. I'll talk to you Monday. I said, hey, hey, Ken, let me ask you something real quick. Do I need to get a tax attorney? He said, I'm walking in to the office of one of the top tax attorneys in the country. We're going to read your email. We'll get back to you on Monday. I said, okay, Ken. and my blood pressure continues to spurt through my ears and my eyeballs. <laughs> so Monday I walk in to, at his appointment, he goes, hey, the tax attorney, is, he's gonna be here in 10 minutes. I said, really? He goes, yeah, he's gonna be here. And so we're talking and this guy walks in, you know, the guy, mid 40s, early 40s, walks in, he goes, Steve, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I said, I'm so honored to meet you. <laughs> I said, hey, you have no clue how honored I am to meet you. And he goes, no, you don't understand. He said, when I became a Christian, a guy handed me Point Man, that's the first book I ever read. And then I read your book, Finishing Strong. And then I read, and he spent 10 minutes telling me about all my books. He said, you know Point Man in chapter eight? I don't know what's in chapter eight. I wrote that 20 years ago. <laughs> he knew it was in chapter eight and he's going through all my books. And he said, you had such a ministry in my life. He said, man, I'm just so thrilled to be here and be of assistance to you. And then we sit down for an hour, and they said, listen, we know this is a little uh, disconcerting. Yeah, as blood shot out through my eyeballs. He said, you know, Steve, we can't do what you do, but this is what we do. So why don't you let us handle this? And by the way, you're in the right here, and this is going to take some time. And then I walked out of there and I thought, that's great. But what, sometimes you're in the right and you get a wrong judgment, and my mind started taking off. They said, it's gonna take some time. I think they thought less than a year. It took three years. It kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And early on... um, and I'd wake up in the middle of the night, I'd go back and look at all my QuickBooks. And I had the Ministry QuickBooks, and I'm looking at everything, and I'm trying to, I'm going through. And I mean, I'm just, that happened about three or four nights. And one night, I went to bed, I woke up, and my first conscious thought when I woke up, this was it. I didn't have a vision, I didn't hear a voice. My first conscious thought was Isaiah chapter 30. And I couldn't remember what was in Isaiah 30. So I got up, went into my office, and I got my Bible. And I'm reading Isaiah 30. And Isaiah 30 is spoken to the leaders of the nation of Judah who are in big trouble, and they are about to be overwhelmed by the invading Assyrians who were bloodthirsty. You don't want to miss the Assyrians. And so what they're doing, they're running off to Egypt to make an alliance with the king of Egypt to protect them. And basically, God is saying to them, why do you keep running to these people and these people and these people and you never come to me? And then you get to verse 15. It's a very interesting verse. You've got to understand the context, okay? Verse 15, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. And I'm looking at that, and I'm trying to break this, and then I'm sitting in my chair, and I thought to myself, I wonder what Leupold says about this. Now, I get a lot of commentaries on Isaiah, but for some reason, H.C. Leupold came into my head. I walk over to the shelf, and I pull down H.C. Leupold on Isaiah. Big commentary this thick. Here's the page. He says this. He says, this passage deals with our tendencies To look to others instead of the Lord. And the message here is not alliances, but reliance. And then he says in this verse, when it says in 15, in repentance, and that word is also in returning. He makes the point, return happens to be the word usually used for repentance. Repent of going to others and come to me. He says, primarily it means to turn aside from the unwholesome policy that controls the thinking of the nation. In short, that they're going to be delivered by an alliance with Egypt. After they abandon this wrong approach, it behooves the nation. And then he's going to give three things out of the verse, three principles. So don't rely on them, rely on me. And if you re- repent and rely on me, he gives three principles out of this verse. Here's the first one. And, and before I give them to you, I, I got to read this statement. He says, There are times when the danger threatening is beyond man's ability to control the situation. Is that not what happens to us? I don't have what it takes to control this, I don't have the resources. I don't have the connections. I don't have the good old boy network. I didn't go to the right schools. I don't have this. I don't have this. Okay, I don't have any of this. And can I say this? God puts us in these situations on purpose. It's not a shock. He planned it. He puts us there to show his glory to us and to build our faith. But... I'm reading this. I didn't say what does Linsky, what does Calvin, what is Walverd, what is uh, you know um, anybody else. What does Leupold say about this? So I'm reading this old German godly man, and he says there are three principles in this verse. Number one, wait calmly. Wait calmly. Number two. Remain quiet. Number three, maintain confidence. Let me go this to you again. So see, you do, you do what you appropriately and legitimately can do, Okay. If you need counsel, go get counsel. If you need a representative, go get a representative. I mean, and I I went to godly men and an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. I talked to a bunch of godly men. They all said, you need to do this. And then I find Sibley and I, oh, by the way, and Sibley and Willie, they say, hey, Steve, you know what? We're gonna represent you and your ministry at no charge, no matter how long this takes. Because we don't want a precedent being set here because we believe you're within the law and it can affect every other pastor in the country. So there won't be any charge. Okay. Well, thanks. Wait calmly. Watch this. Remain quiet. Watch this. Maintain confidence in the midst of the storm. I never gave you the definition that Martin Lloyd Jones gave on faith. And here's what he said. He said, in many situations of the Christian life, faith is a refusal to panic. I think that's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. You take the appropriate steps, you talk to godly men, get godly counsel, and then you look to the Lord and what do you do? By the way, the Egyptians weren't godly men. They were ungodly. So then what do you do? You wait calmly, you remain quiet, and you maintain confidence, which is basically what they told me to do. They said, Steve, listen, you keep doing the work God's called you to do and let us go to work on this and try not to worry about this. And from then on, it went on for three years, and I pretty much slept every night without interruption because I would often go to sleep rehearsing these three things in my mind. And then sometimes I would go to sleep singing the great hymn of the church, Jesus, I am panicking, panicking. LAUGHTER Do you remember that hymn? Maybe not, but if you grew up in church, maybe you remember the hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what thou art, I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me to gaze upon thee. And thy beauty fills my soul, the beauty of his character and who he is. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And let him bring us through in his way and in his time. We thank you, Father, that you were there, that you are mindful of every guy in this room, every circumstance, every fear, every challenge, every threat to our well-being. Calm our hearts. Calm our hearts. Uh, help us to watch what we put in our minds. Uh, I would pray that if we have never built time in to our daily schedule to feed on your word and your promises that we would begin. And then, Lord, if we find a promise like Isaiah 30, and I remember writing this thing down on a post-it note three different places. I put it in my bathroom, I put it on my desk, I put it on the dashboard of my car. And I drilled those principles into my head because I never knew when I was going to get nailed and start to fear. Help us to apply the neosporin of your word to our situation, to apply it. And to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is greater than any threat, and who is our ultimate deliverer. In his name we pray. Amen.